From Share Profits, brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards, this is the Share Profits Radio Show, episode 24, for the 3rd of February, 2020. And now here's your host, Tom Winterfrith. Hi, it is indeed Tom Winifrith with the 24th edition of Share Profits Radio, brought to you from Wales, albeit just by 30 yards. Uh, this podcast is free. Uh, we are able to do that since uh, I don't do anything for free. Uh, thanks to the kind sponsorship of Open Orphan PLC. I'm very happy to take sponsorship from Open Orphan, which is an AIM-listed company, uh, because I'm a happy shareholder. Uh, the stock is, I think, just over 6p now. Uh, I believe uh, the shares uh, will be well over 10p by the mid-year. Uh, the company should be profitable this year and cash generative. Having just completed a 5.3 million fundraise, it is also well cashed up. What's not to like? Anyhow, don't take my word for it. I'd hope to have Cathal Friel of Open Orphan on a show within the next couple of weeks to explain the story. There are a number of articles uh, up on share profits, including uh, my tip of the year for 2020 at a 4.6p offer. So those who followed that are doing jolly well so far. More to come, I suspect. I often write on share profits about companies which I say are set to do a placing. Occasionally, that is because I actually know that. Uh, someone has told me the details of a placing, and I run the story accordingly if I rely on my source. This isn't a breach of insider dealing laws. Insider dealing laws specifically uh, exclude journalists who report things on the basis that the job of a journalist, a good journalist, is to report things people don't want to know. Uh, uh, anything else is merely PR. Of course, I can't report details of replacing if I've been made an insider. Uh, to be made an insider, you have to agree to be made an insider. So someone brings you over the line. Tom, uh, would you like to be made an insider uh, on a certain stock? Normally, I say no. I'd rather not know what you're about to tell me because it restricts my ability to write about that stock. But occasionally I say yes, at which point not only am I not allowed to trade in that stock, but I'm unable to advise you to trade or to write an article which may have a slant. I can therefore say absolutely nothing. Uh, however, if someone comes to me uh, with some information and does not make me an insider, uh, I am free to report it, and therefore I will uh, uh, report uh, stories uh, about companies which are set to do placings. And nearly always, I am correct. And people say, well, why do you do that? Because it means that the share price goes down. Well, yes, the share price does go down, and it may even mean that the placing happens at a lower level. If you believe in the company, you should welcome this. You should say, thank you very much, Tom, for allowing me to buy more shares on the cheap. I'll send you a bottle of Uzo uh, by first-class post. Uh, what I am doing, though, is saving people from overpaying uh, before replacing, which inevitably goes to a small handful of city insiders, bucket shops, spivs and the like, uh, because the normal game plan on AIM is that shitty little companies put out spurious, raptastic announcements, do interviews with Justin the Clown on Vox Markets, do interviews with proactive investors, commission Edison to write a research note, blah, 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 ramp the share price up, and then do the play. Uh, so, mug punters. 
uh, you, me, ordinary investors, overpay for stock in the secondary market only uh, for stock to be placed at a huge discount uh, with the bucket shop spivs uh, who make a quick turn at our expense. If I can stop that wicked little cycle uh, by exposing a placing, I think I'm doing my job. More often, though, it is not saying that Company X is about to do a placing at YP uh, 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 and is looking to raise Z million pounds. It is not reporting that specific information, but it is speculating that a company is bound to do a fundraise. And people say, but how, how do you know this? Well, it's very simple. It's just about reading the maths. Uh, take an example today. Uh, which I wrote about is a company called Vasarian, uh, one of the most grotesquely overvalued companies on uh, the AIM market. The shares are at 63p. I reckon they're worth between 5 and 10p. And actually, I'm being pretty generous with that. It could be an awful lot less. The company has been proven to have misled investors on numerous occasions via RNS and via comments made in private chat rooms and on Twitter and in interviews with Justin the Clown, etc., etc., etc. That in itself uh, is a pretty bad thing. <clears throat> However, the issue which faces the company now is not just the fact that it has lost any credibility, apart from a diehard uh, group of disciples who respond to every expose I run on share profits uh, by making posts about how I'm either a paedophile or someone who seeks to make money from paedophiles. Uh, two of those posters uh, are, are now uh, being dealt with by my lawyers. We seek to get their identity and take appropriate action. Uh, but generally, uh, the company is losing credibility, notwithstanding the valiant defence from people who think that calling critics paedophiles is somehow going to save their rotten investment. Um, but the issue which faces Vasari now is its cash position. You see, you can work out a company's cash position at any given point pretty accurately. Companies are not like uh, nimble uh, uh, sailing dinghies, uh, which can turn and change direction and alter their course dramatically. Certainly in terms of operating costs, uh, uh, they're not in that way. They're more like super tankers. It takes an awful long time to alter the operating costs of any given company. I mean, take staff, which is generally the, the main cost of many companies. If you want to get rid of staff to de-layer, uh, to reduce the overhead, uh, you can't just say you're fired in an Alan Sugar type ma uh, manner. I, I wish that was the case. It would make capitalism far more effective. You can't just go, you're fired, the person leaves the door and you don't pay them a cent, and therefore your cost base is reduced. You have to go through a pretty tortuous process to avoid getting a unfair dismissal lawsuit, even if it's a slam dunk, and you end up having to give them their notice period, which is typically three months. So if you say you're going to alter your cost base today, in reality, in terms of cash burn, it could actually be worse. You have to give them three months' money up front, uh, and only after three months will you actually be making savings. So it's pretty easy to look at the uh, uh, to make assumptions about the cash burn of a company like Vasarian. Vasarian's revenues aren't going to change pretty much between the last half year, which ended on September 30th, and the current half year, which will be the full year to March 31st. You can assume, therefore, that the cash burn in the current period, if the revenues are going to be more or less the same, they might be up a little bit, it might be down a little bit, but it's basically the same. 
Uh, I suspect they'll be up. They may be down a little bit, actually, but they're not going to change much. And the cost base isn't going to change much. Okay, uh, the company may be flying to China a little bit less uh, uh, over the coming weeks than it did in the first half of the year for for reasons I think you can speculate about. Uh, 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 But basically, it's going to be pretty much the same. Therefore, I could make a fairly valid assumption that the cash burn in the current six months is going to be pretty similar to the cash burn uh, in the last six months, which was £1.4 million. You can look at the company's cash position, uh, or net cash position, uh, as at the end of H1, which was around about uh, 1.9, 1.8 million pounds. Uh, But you can also look at its obligations. Uh, We know the company had an obligation to make a payment around about 600,000 quid uh, uh, to uh, a Spanish company as of October the 1st, the first day of the current period. All of that allows me to make a, a pretty bold claim that by the end of March, uh, Vasarium will be in a net debt position. Uh, it will have cash in the bank, but it will be in net debt, which is not a position which will allow it to get a sign-off from its auditors for the full year, and it is not a position that is sustainable. You can do that simply by looking at basic maths. It's not rocket science. People don't tend to to look at uh, 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 company accounts in any great detail, which is one of the reasons that they lose money on shares. If you look at the half-year statement, it's very, very clear what the cash position is, what the cash burn is. And if you look at the RNS from the company, you can see the obligations that the company is due to make. And that allows you to arrive at the assumption that the company will have net debt of around uh, £200,000, £250,000 at the end of the current year, that is March 31st, which would mean, based on the cash burn in the uh, first half of uh, uh, this year, uh, that the company will go into net debt sometime in the last week in February. Now, of course, there are uh, 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 things which can be done to change that. Uh, Companies can delay paying bills. They can ramp up their trade payables and therefore preserve cash. And that would be one way of making sure that my numbers were wrong. But that's not sustainable. Uh, And everybody knows that's not sustainable. Eventually, you have to pay your bills. Or perhaps the company uh, can put a squeeze on those who owe it money and manage to get a little bit extra in. All of those things can provide you with wriggle room. Uh, They can mean that my assumption that the company goes into a net debt position in the last week in February is out by a month or maybe even two months if the company really, really plays hardball with not paying its bills and squeezing those to owe it money. Uh, But it's not a sustainable thing. Eventually, things break. You start getting suppliers saying, well, we're not going to give you any more supplies, or we're going to send a letter for action, or we're going to try and get a county court judgment against you. And once word gets out that you're in that sort of position, uh, then you are in deep trouble as other suppliers start panicking and as people start doing refusing to do business with you. So you can make a pretty pretty good assumption about when the underlying position of a company going to, like Vasarian running out of money is going to take place. And once you do that, uh, well, what are the company's options? In the case of Vasarian, there's no way that any bank is going to lend this cash-guzzling piece of shit any money. Therefore, you know it has to do an equity placing. 
I can't tell exactly when the company is going to do an equity placing, and I can't just like I can't tell exactly when the company will go into a net debt position, since it could easily uh, uh, delay making payments to creditors for a while. Uh, but you know it has to happen, and you know that you're in the roughly in the right time frame. My guess is that Vasarian would be advised to go sooner rather than later with the placing. If you leave things to the wire, then A, any potential investor, even a bucket shop, is going to demand their pound of flesh and is going to go for the lowest possible price. And B, it's just possible that something could happen. And you can't get the placing way at all. You know, you're about to do a placing and suddenly there's a major conflagration, conflagration in the Gulf. American Iran start swapping missiles or something like that. Stock markets tank and the placing has to get pulled. You never know. Therefore, everything tells me you should try and get the placing done as soon as possible. Uh, the long stop date, well, that will be, there'll be two long stop dates. The first is, if the company is going to get its accounts out without the auditors saying uh, explicitly that the company's going to run out of money, there's an emphasis of matter, well, uh, Vasarin's results would come out sometime, I suspect, in August or maybe September, uh, 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 maybe a little bit sooner. So that's one long stop date. But the other long stop date is when it actually runs out of cash. Going into a net debt position is something that maybe those who lend it money are comfortable with. We don't know. Uh, but when you run out of cash, well, that really is an issue since you just can't afford to pay any bills at all. Uh, the running out of cash position, I suspect, uh, would be sometime, uh, Keteris Paribus again, uh, would be sometime in June or July. So there you get your long stop date by June for two very good reasons, the company has to have uh, a placing. But that's very much a long stop. It uh, doesn't, for all sorts of reasons, want to get anywhere close to the long stop. And that tells you the company has to issue fresh equity uh, uh, before uh, too long. Vasarian is one case study. You can make uh, do the same calculations with more or less any quoted company, which is losing money and burning cash, as is the case with Vasarian. It just is a matter of looking at the RNSs and looking at the annual report and the interim results. Of course, most investors are too lazy to do that uh, or wouldn't know where to start. And that is one of the reasons why they lose money on shares so often. Right, uh, it's enough from me. Uh, we have one guest on uh, this week's show, and I think we'll take a short break and then you'll meet that guest. My guest today is the man of the moment, Matt Earl, the dark destroyer of Shadowfall Research. Um, Matt, you're a bear. Last week on uh, Share Profits Radio, we had Lucian Myers uh, basically saying he was thinking of throwing in the towel. Well, not seriously, because he's not fit for anything else, but he's having a fairly miserable time of it as a bear. Uh, whatever he touches, it doesn't matter if it's a slam dunk fraud, the shares still go up. Uh, are you thinking of quitting? Uh, no, not quitting, but I have to say, I, I, I sympathise with Lucian because it's been pretty tough this past year or so um, with the market. Um, I mean, I think Lucian was lamenting about Tesla uh, largely last week. And I mean, fortunately for me, I don't think we've gone anywhere near Tesla. Um, it looks too much like corporate Bitcoin, uh, in my view. 
Um, so I've never, never shorted it. I find it too frightening either way, really. Um, but, but surely Tesla, I mean, we have a, a, a CEO who's a proven uh, fraudster. He's committed securities fraud. Uh, the company's accounts are clearly uh, bogus. Uh, it never generates any cash. Um, the big guns in the industry are coming for it with uh, superior products. Uh, what's not to like? Well, no, I mean, I do. I, you know, I, I have some sympathy for the bears, and I, I you know, there is clearly a bear argument for it. Um, the problem is, is that you've got kind of this, I think, fundamentalist crusaders on on the short side, um, rightly so. But on the, the long side, you've got these devout fanatics that um, that uh, are just prepared to kind of overlook the fundamentals of the business, um, as you say, the wrongdoings of. Uh, you know, the, the, the dope-smoking libel merchant who, who, with a weird brother, um, and just be prepared to look through that. I mean, as I said, I can understand the short angle, but it's always looked to me to be much too much of a, a painful short to, to uh, pursue. Um, and I think that you know, whilst technically I'm always reminded by um, Longs that the the downside to shorting is theoretically uh, limitless. Um, my argument has always been that I've never known a stock go to infinity. Well, Tesla certainly looks like it's giving it a shot at the moment, um, and I'm not quite sure where it stops. Um, I mean, the, the, I guess the other problem is is that you know historically the issue for the company is that it doesn't generate any cash um, and or, nor profit. On a sustainable basis, and the problem now is, I guess, that with the market cap of 100 and whatever it is today, 117 billion, um, you know, the reality is, if they raise equity, even at a discount, they could probably easily raise 12 billion or so um, with with what about 10% equity. And if I were long, I wouldn't be too fussed about that. So that would keep them in business for at least another 12 months, one would imagine. Um, Don't. Does the music stop at any stage with Tesla? Will yeah, there come a point yes. where I mean, you'll I think, say, I, yeah. I really have got to go short of this? Yeah, I think, it, well, it does. I think that moment is probably when it actually becomes profitable and cash generative um, for perhaps two consecutive quarters or even for a year or so. Because at that point in time, um, when it, if, it, if it does and if or when it does become profitable and cash generative, then, of course, all the CFAs that have spent all their time um, learning their accounting and learning how to value companies can suddenly whip out their, you know, their Panasonic scientific calculators, do their whip up their DCFs and work out then, at that point, that it's probably worth a fraction of VW or Ford or whoever. Um, but at that point in time, we're not, we're not quite arrived at yet. Do you think it will become profitable? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Who knows? I mean, <laughs> uh, it might do fleetingly. Um, I don't know. I mean, look, there is serious competition um, in that market now. Uh, you've got to argue that that competition is only going to increase. Um and even if it does become profitable, it's not going to be, there's no reason for it to become kind of super profitable in the manner in which the market values at, at the current level. 
In, in terms of the, the I mean, Tesla is perhaps the sort of poster boy for market insanity. Um, what is keeping the market at levels which, given that the outlook for global economic growth is pretty poor, uh, and events in China are, are hardly going to uh, make that any better, what is keeping the market up? Um, well, Do you care about the coronavirus, by the way? Not especially at the moment, no. Um, I mean, I may do if we start to get the number of cases in the UK, but um, in terms of you know, personal <laughs> uh, personal health, no, I see it as low risk. I don't necessarily, with, with the countries that it's reached thus far, it doesn't seem as though it's a huge amount of cases. And I think when you put it into context with just the general flu season, then it's, it's at the moment... Um, nothing to be too worried about. Um, in terms of... It might the, impact on global economic growth, might it not? Well, yes. I mean, that, in that respect, yes. I mean, the um, clearly, I mean, I think you know, there's been headlines out overnight about uh, Chinese oil demand being 20% lower. Obviously, the, the uh, impact on airlines has been significant. Um, one would imagine that supply chains are going to be disrupted so yes, the even Neil Ricketts won't be able to do a deal in China. Uh, in the well, yeah, I never put it past him. <laughs> this might be the year. <laughs> it is the year of the rat, I think. But anyway, the um, the uh, what was I saying? The in terms of global growth, I mean, look, yeah, I think the regardless of this coronavirus, global growth was starting to trickle down uh, or tail off over the last six months or so. I mean, it's not. The economies don't seem to be going gangbusters. Um, we're at a moment in time when valuations are very high across the equity market. Growth is fairly low. Um, profit margins seem to be at peaks. And I think the only thing that really sustained the market last year was um, just the Fed and central banks overall starting to, well, certainly the Fed, uh, expand, begin expanding its balance sheet yet again. Um, that and a, a bias to uh, more dovish rhetoric from the Fed and a number of central banks, I think, is what has kept the market propped up. And indeed, when you look at how valuations, uh, company valuations developed over the course of last year, it was largely from just the, the valuations increasing and nothing really to do with actual earnings. Um, and one could argue that given the juncture where we are at now, the the prospect of earnings coming through um, commensurate with where those valuations are is probably less likely, certainly, than six months ago. Um, so I think it's just it's mainly just kind of this endless pumping by the central banks. And what that has formed, which is incredible apathy by investors to risk, um, you know, the, the, we got stung very badly by being short a company last year. It's a German company called Varta, uh, where we lost a fair amount of money in the fund last year, being short it. This is a company that um, went up fivefold in the year. It makes miniaturized batteries. And the ball points throughout the year were, that, were prof that was proffered by Sellside was very reminiscent of Dialyte and IQE. I don't know if you called Dialyte many years ago now when 
they embarked on um, their their launch into the LED lighting market, and the sell side were were suggesting that they had IP and patents, and that they effectively had a monopoly on that LED market. And then IQE and the Vixel market again, the sell side kind of positively frothing at the mouth, saying that this has got patents galore, and um, they've essentially got a monopoly. Well, the same arguments were offered on. Um, on Valta, uh, and the the, you know, the investor base just lapped it up. Very apathetic to any risk associated with that. Mainly, probably Chinese competitors, because the Chinese don't seem to care one bit about um, patents or um, or IP, and they will massively undercut, as they did with Dialight, as they did with IQE, and as they are here to be doing now with with Valta. But that's the thing that has propped things up, I think. Just the uh, general central bank dovish rhetoric and um, what's that fostered, which is the the apathetic appetite to risk. Well, you mentioned something there uh, about sell-side pushing a particular story. Uh, this would be uh, uh, analysts at research houses, with, with the honourable exception of our friend Kevin Ashton, uh, are prepared to push any old story. Why is that? Is it because they're lazy um, and just can't be bothered to do the detailed research? Or is it all just because, well, they're just pumping uh, house stocks or want to be house stocks? They're in it for the money. Well, yeah, I mean, I, there's, there's that incentive massively. I think that, uh, firstly, the, I think the bulk of the research is these days classed as non-independent, i.e. It's, it's essentially marketing documents for companies whether they're house broker or whether they want to be house brokers. And the reality is, is because there's a pittance of monies that can be made through trading commissions these days. Um, uh, asset managers and, and hedge funds now, certainly in Europe, have to pay for research. The quality on the sell side just really isn't worth the papers written on, so they can't monetize it in that fashion. So the only way to monetize um, and to 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 have any chance of making your research uh, section a profit center is to um, write very puffy buy recommendations on companies in the hope of winning their corporate mandates. The and it and it goes without saying that is that the best corporate mandates to win are with the companies that have the most insatiable appetites for cash, i.e. they constantly have to raise capital, whether it's through equity issuance or, or debt, or whether um, they're uh, 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 on a, a massive M&A splurge and then they reap in significant fees from advisory fees. So I think that's, yeah, that's the reason um, why the sentiment on the sell side is, is so widely bullish. The other thing is, I think that there is an opportunity um, when people do proper homework on companies, because let's face it, the, the sell-side analyst is typically trying to cover anywhere between about 10 to 20 companies. So they're spread fairly thin in terms of their research efforts and the time that they have to devote to one in, in, in particular for individual company. Uh, which means that effectively they have to take it, uh, at face value what the company says. There yeah. is little time for them to go and dig into subsidiary company accounts, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, very much so, yeah. Uh, we mentioned their IQE. Now, you did produce, a, uh, I was looking at the share price the other day, it's, uh, it's now sub 50p. I think when you produced your big sell notes on it, they were 106p. Uh, uh, 
is now a time to sort of be buying back into the stock? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think when we 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 had a chat last time, this I think it was about maybe four months ago or so, that was pre-profit warning when it looked pretty obvious they were setting themselves up for a profit warning. And, and at the time, sell side seemed to be massively behind the curve in adjusting their numbers. Um, it did have that profit warning. It sold off a bit. It's bounced back a little bit. It's it's pretty volatile. I mean, fundamentally, I don't think see value above 30 pence per share for this company. Um, I, I'd be, if anything, looking to short. We don't have a short position at the minute, but I'd be looking to short it if it does have any show the signs of strength. It gets above 60p or even approaches 70 pence per share. Um, I mean, what's going, what would be uh, helpful this time around is that the short interest, I don't think, is as high as it has been in the past. So um, there's probably not as much prospect for short closing um, to support the share price. And again, with the state of the world as it stands at the moment, uh, I, I doubt very much that... Um, uh, that they've got significant growth prospects ahead. I mean, the other thing to add is, of course, that I think I, you know, Apple are pumping out more iPhones than ever before, and this company can't make seem to make much of a return um, despite being in that supply chain. Mm. Do you know do you, my QE? I suppose I'll go back. Sorry to ask, the coronavirus. Uh, it does a lot of business out in the, uh, the Far East, which is now heading towards being in lockdown. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so this is traditionally as quiet as quarter. It could be exceptionally quiet this year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could be nothing going on. Um, I don't know. I mean, all I look at, all I do is I look at it and I see. Well, this is probably in terms of uh, underlying demand. Forget about the coronavirus for the moment. And yes, that will undoubtedly impact on it. But that's only really reared its ugly head over the last month or so. Whereas the reality of the situation is, is that there's probably been unprecedented demand for IQE's product in throughout 2018, 2019, and they weren't able to make a proper or a, a, a return from it that's commensurate with the valuation at that time, or indeed probably at its current time as it stands. Um, it was probably about as good as it gets for it in terms of the cycle, and now that cycle's it has started to turn uh, or, or, and is probably going downwards what, with what's going on. Is there, um, with IQE, uh, is it what, uh, as has often been the case in the past, uh, one profit's warning away from having another balance sheet issue? Possibly, yeah. I mean, um, I, I, I suspect that they probably do need to raise more capital at some point in time. Um, I think that they had a... Uh, they increased their debt facilities not that long ago, so that's probably bought them some time. But certainly, if the if the revenue starts to tail off and things do grind to uh, 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 come to a halt, then um, that's going to really impact on their cash generation. And which is never particularly good at, at the best of times. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And given where they were in terms of their indebtedness. Last time they reported, I think that um, their banks are going to start to get a little bit jittery around uh, you know, where they might be at the moment. Because there's, there's two issues there, isn't there? Is A, do they have headroom on the facility? Uh, but B, there presumably are a whole load of covenant tests. And if the company does indeed serve up another 
lack of profits warning, it may well come to the point where they have to ask the banks for a waiver. And if I was yeah. a banker to IQE, I might grant the waiver, but only on condition that the company went out and raised some more money. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, that's usually how things work out. Um, so it, it, it feeds back <laughs> full circle to probably sell-side wanting to have a lot of buy recommendations on this company because they know that there's going to be a decent cash raise down the pipe. And uh, if you've got a sell or a hold, then you're unlikely to be on that ticket. So... Um, you old cynic. Now, the reason you're man of the moment is not uh, 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 to do with the past, but the future. Uh, you published a dossier on Friday on a company called Future PLC. Uh, and I've, I've uh, done a bear cast today because Future has put out a trading statement. Uh, Sam Antar will be congratulating Future because I think it's the first time I can remember a, a company dealing with its critics uh, in this particular way. The trading statement didn't mention you at all. Uh, they are ignoring you completely and just blathering on about how uh, they're delivering very strong organic growth, which, as you demonstrated conclusively in your dossier, they're not uh, whatever they insist. Uh, Sam Antar, uh, 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 our, our good friend from uh, uh, New York, mm. uh, when he was a fraudster, his view was... If you uh, someone attacks you, you ignore them completely. You don't want to give them any publicity. Uh, but I can never remember anyone actually doing it, and Future's done it. Yeah, absolutely. Not even threatened to, to get an independent uh, KPMG to do a, 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 an independent inquiry. Not even saying that they're consulting their lawyers. No, I mean, it's, as you say, it's textbook Antar in terms of the response. The... Um, and to some degree, I'd say probably you know, that is the best approach. You know, Sam's the expert on it. And if he says that's the best approach to take, then he knows that that's probably the best approach to take. Um, I mean, look, the, the update they put out this morning was, it was, uh, I thought, pretty wishy-washy, to be honest. You know, it, was, um, it was very similar to, or basically it was a carbon copy of one they released around this time last year. Um, back then, they said that they had uh, they made similar overtones about strong revenue growth. Um, as you know, as we said later, they claim to have achieved 11% organic growth, but um, for 2019. But as far as we we can tell, then we we can't make it add up to more than 1%. Um, possibly it was it was shrinking. Um, maybe further down the line, the numbers won't necessarily add up for 2020. Who who, who knows? Um, I mean, it is interesting they didn't even attempt to reconcile the the organic growth numbers. But then again, I don't necessarily understand how they could do because the the, the components into our computation of it um, come from their own numbers, from their own disclosures, and those disclosures demonstrate um, that on the way that they define their organic growth it's very difficult to arrive at anywhere near 11%. Um, so maybe the reason that they didn't have any form of rebuttal is because it's mathematically impossible for them to do so. They could always use the um, word refute. 
Yes, they could do. Yes, I suppose they could do. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the, react, the reaction in the market was fairly muted as well. I mean, you know, the, I think the, the market tried to hike it up above £14 first thing in the morning and it sold off fairly quickly thereafter. Um, I think now that it's probably... the um, Bearing in mind, they've got an AGM on Wednesday and they have a capital markets day on Thursday. I think that there's a lot of questions that need to be asked of this company. And um, we're still short it, I should uh, add, for full disclosure. Um, and we, we think that the, 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 the price is likely to go materially lower from here. Um, what, what, what would be a fair price? Well, I mean, I think probably something around £8 a share. I mean, the thing is, is that it, the thing that attracted us to this as a, as a, as a good, worthy short is that... Um, you know, historically, it's not been a great business, and we're always very focused on histories of companies. And it's very unusual for companies to change their spots. Um, you know, IQE is a great example of that. That's what attracted us to that company initially. Um, Burford is is a good example of that. And then these type or Dialyte, and you know, the list goes on. And these types of companies historically have not been. Um, particularly great. They suddenly get a second life where you know, something happens, they change strategy, they've got a new product or they raise a load of capital and, and they, they seek to invest that um, or new management come in. Um, but generally, history uh, 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 proves accurate in terms of the outlook for companies. Um, but you know, what's happened with this business is that they have suddenly in the last three years gone on a large spending spree and they've raised a lot of capital uh, oodles of capital which is why Sellside loves them so much um, because they want to be on those tickets and they've raised that through largely through equity um, and then obviously through the M&A they've had big probably chunky advisory fees that have come in um, but essentially future is a roll up and um, the problem is is that you know, when we look at what it's bought, it doesn't strike us as though what they've bought has been particularly great. And then, indeed, when they're talking about what they've bought and how they've supposedly managed to eke out synergies and efficiencies and growth platform effects, it doesn't ring true in terms of everything adding up. Um, so, bearing in mind that they've bought all this, largely on around one and a half to, to 1.9 times sales, and it trades at whatever it is, nearly seven times sales, um, one could argue that either all of the hope and anticipation in extracting all this, this value in these businesses as they're cobbled all together is already priced in, or... Um, the reason that they were able to buy all this stuff on such lowly valuations is because their the businesses aren't worth that much and that value will will ring true and that fundamentally this business probably isn't worth more than two to three times sales in that case you're looking at a share price of eight pounds or, or lower okay let's just return to the training time oh, sorry, remind me what does future do well, historically, they've had a lot of print titles, um, and it was it was print media. And of course, over the last well decade or, or longer, 
um, one through advertising revenues and general circulations. That's that's been a a high attrition rate in terms of lost revenue. Um, and then what they've done is they've embarked on a spending spree, buying up generally um, either companies that have their own um, print media businesses and translating that into onto their platform on websites um, and uh, looking to monetize it through uh, their platform or they've bought digital businesses and uh, such as things like Perch Media or Perch Group or Mobile Nations, um, which do already have strong digital presence and sought to put them onto their own platform and extract synergies and, and grow them um, uh, in that manner. So that's what they're doing now. So they've, they've, they've reached a stage where in 2019, um, their revenues are around 220 million and the old print media business is roughly, uh, I, I think about 40%, 30, 40% of their revenues and their digital side is now the, the balance. Um, and digital is meant to be faster growing and more profitable and more cash generative. Well, 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 not necessarily more cash generative, but certainly more, more um, uh, 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 profitable and, and more rapidly growing. If putting a, a, a print titles online and just making digital offerings was so easy, uh, why is it that most most newspapers are running at such a huge loss? Yeah, I mean, precisely. I mean, it's, it, the reason is it's not that easy. Um, and I think what you might get is you might get a, a kind of one-off uplift um, in terms of when you buy something that perhaps does have a... A, a more traditional print media business, and then you you uh, digitalize it, you might well get this this kind of one-off uplift in terms of profitability. But it's not necessarily sustainable in terms of um, uh, strong growth of the top line, and certainly not necessarily sustainable in continued margin progression. So, yeah, I, I don't think it is that easy. I mean, when you look at something like TI Media, um, which is a company they're seeking to buy. This is the company that they announced that they wanted to buy for uh, 140 million in October last year. They raised 104 million in in equity. Um, month later, they sold 43.7 million of stock. Um, management did, but but they raised 104 million of equity to support this this purchase. When you look at TI Media, that is largely a print business, and TI Media has its revenues have collapsed by about 6% a year, year in, year out, for the last decade. It's had to, um, uh, it, it's, it's had to uh, uh, reduce its headcount, obviously, because um, in order to try and maintain some profitability, it's had to cut back on headcount, and so it's taken continued reorganisation and restructuring charges. Um, TI Media... It is a collection of about 40 or so titles. You've got Country Life, What's on TV, um, Women's Weekly, all those types of things. Um, it's got a few review sites as well. Um, but the, you, I don't get the sense that you're going to be able to necessarily translate Country Life into a great uh, uh, digital asset, which is going to where they, you're going to be able to monetize it through the roof. Um, nor indeed when it comes to things like TV Weekly or Women's Weekly, that that's easily 
um, saleable in places like the US or Australia or wherever. Um, so I think that's one quite difficult. And two, the other thing is that TI Media itself has gone to some lengths to try to digitalize its its assets itself. Um, and it looks as though that they've themselves been fairly unsuccessful at that. So, I mean, we'll see, but you know, you're right in terms of um, if it was that easy, why are why are you know, newspapers and, and, and typical print that have migrated over to digital not making a great success of it? Country Life is the sort of publication that posh estate agents uh, uh, or posh <laughs> restaurants you go to in, in this part of the world have whilst you wait for your table. I can't see really what the online appeal of it is. No, well, exactly, exactly. That's the, yeah, the other thing. I mean, you know, it's stuff like it's a lot of stuff that you just go in when you're in those horrible moments when you have to go to the dentist and you sat in the, the, the waiting room or at the doctor's surgery or something. Um, you know, they're not going to certainly the doctor's surgery aren't going to be handing out tablets to start looking at this on their tablet because that's the best way to pick up coronavirus, I'd imagine. But. Uh, <laughs> so, so, yeah, it's difficult. I mean, it's difficult to see how this translates over. One thing, though, they did say was that profits for this year are going to be materially ahead of management expectations. And that's a blinder, isn't it? That they serve this up uh, the day, the working day after a, a bear report comes out. Jolly handy. It is, yeah. I mean, firstly, what are those expectations? Have they ever... Um, Put those out into the market. Obviously, we know what the consensus is, but internally, not necessarily sure what those expectations are. Um, secondly, my understanding is that if you have, if, on the flip side, if you were to have a profit warning, if you're um, if you're expected to be materially below expectations, then you have to immediately make an announcement. I presume it probably works the other way around. So clearly, over the weekend, they've suddenly totted up the numbers. And thought, crikey, we're going to be materially ahead of expectations. That's Let's brilliant! Get... What yeah. great luck! We can mention that on Monday when we're <laughs> exactly. ignoring that up. Exactly. Let's get this out first thing, seven a.m. Monday morning. Oh, what, you know, what a coincidence! This just so happens to come out after a, um, a, a, a fairly critical report into the company. So you don't, you're not worried about that. What about the fact that the cash position is ahead of forecast? Well, again, we don't know what those that what that cash you know, what their what their expectation is on this. I mean, I would the one thing I'd add is that by now, the I would have thought they may they may have thought they they might be some way either have completed the TI Media acquisition, which is going to be delayed because of the Competition Markets Authority review of that. Um, I can't remember if it was meant to be completed by now or before the CMA review by um, March, if it was by now, then of course their cash position probably is ahead of expectations because they would have thought they'd have spent it. Um, but maybe it is. I mean, as I said, it's difficult to tell whether it's ahead or not because if you don't know what the expectations are in the first place, then um, uh, yeah, who knows? Okay. Now, one thing about future is um, it's uh, I, I, some people always go on about well, you should judge a company by the quality of its shareholder list, um, mm. and you know, just because some you know snotty ex-analyst like you kicks up a fuss, uh, on the other side, it's not like you're up against the the morons who own shares in Vasarium Party. 
Uh, you're up against some uh, well-known institutions. This is Mark Slater's largest single holding. He's a clever guy. He is, yes. Um, I mean, and it does make one you know, pause for thought. Um, much like, you know, on the short side, it's quite encouraging to see clever people like, say, Ennismore uh, with a short interest position. Um, you think, well, they're clever people and, and they're probably got their own reasons to be short a company and um, that's probably worth looking at. Um, on if on the long side, it probably encourages you to see quality institutions such as Slater um, there. And, it, and it, it, it does give one possible thought. However, um, I mean, the only thing that I would say on this is that I, I think uh, you highlighted on Share Profits last week that uh, Mark Slater said, oh, you, you, you should speak to management. Um, which I thought was a pretty weak response in that you'd have thought that if that was your largest holding, that you'd be able to mount a bit of a stronger response to questions over any mention of accounting funnies than just simply talk to management. Um, as if the management were ever going to say, yeah, you know what, the numbers, they did come from us and you know, we said 11%, but you're right, actually, they don't add up. Um, so I think that's very unlikely. <laughs> Um, also, I mean, the other thing was, so you know, to that, in that respect, it kind of then suggests that maybe they haven't done as much homework um, as you might have thought. No, I, I find that hard to believe. Mark Slater does his homework. You know, that's why he is a uh, good fund manager. And if it, for it, it's his largest holding, I cannot believe that he delegated that to the uh, receptionist. He would have <laughs> well, done homework and he would have done it personally. Well, OK, but then... Um, I'd be open to, to having a, an explanation as to how they are able to arrive at 11% organic growth, um, just purely from the numbers that they provided. Uh, I mean, the other thing which I thought was interesting was that it is a little bit rich and, and kind of holier than now to go to the lengths to write to companies, um, berating them for greed and the egregious nature of share awards, um, and then overlook what is currently probably one of the biggest culprits in the market um, uh, for this the egregious nature of these share awards. In defence of Slater, uh, mm. because he is my friend, or at least he was my friend, um, uh, uh, he we don't know the private conversations that he has had with the company, do we? No, that's true. And I, I would hope that at the AGM on Wednesday, that they, having written this letter, that they would intend to vote down the remuneration report. Um, because it is absurd. I mean, you know, he and he had very good points. This is the thing. He had very, very good points in that letter in that it has got um, uh, out of hand uh, amongst companies uh, with with uh, the, the remuneration that management uh, are able to get. Um, and the fact is, is that rightly so, he suggested that remuneration reports shouldn't be more than two pages long. Um, well, Futures is 26. So I do, I applaud him for the having written that. And I think it's very good. However, I would hope that he does follow through and does decide to vote that down. Uh, on, on Let's assume that he votes it down. Um, I, yeah. What will happen there is it, the odds are, you and I both know, most institutions back the board. It's very rare that they all rally around and vote something down. 
So to me, there are three possible outcomes. One, Slater and a couple of private investors voted down and it's passed overwhelmingly. Mm -hmm. uh, two, a few institutions rally round Slater, but it's still passed by quite a long way. Or three, it's voted down. I don't think three is, is likely. Let's no, assume it's yeah. one, one or two. The company might, in the case of two, say, well, we've taken this on board and we'll do better next time. We're, we'll get back to you in six months. But then they never do do anything. They don't change. They might, might shorten the remuneration report, but they're going to carry on paying themselves <laughs> obscene bonuses. Uh, and and they'll be able to play chicken with people like Slater, say, we're going to carry on doing it. And if you don't like it, sell. Yeah, I, I think that's probably a likely outcome. I mean, I don't, for one moment, I don't believe that the the remuneration report will be voted down um, to the degree that it, it doesn't get passed. Um, there may be some dissenting votes, uh, perhaps uh, Slater Investments included, but I don't think that they'll be sufficient to to so that the the motion isn't passed. Um, and you're right, I, nothing will really happen um, thereafter. They may decide to take it on board, but. To some degree, the horse has already bolted in this, in that the, uh, <laughs> let's not forget, they have already cashed in to the degree of 47 uh, sorry, 43.7 million. I mean, this was the other thing, was that they wasted no time whatsoever in cashing in either, because I think the bulk of that, um, that those share awards uh, were from the 2017 uh, performance share plan, um, and within a day or two of them vesting in November, they'd sold and they sold at a discount. They literally couldn't cash in quick enough. Um, and that's it now. They've, they've got that. Yeah, that's coming back. Isn't If we were to be a little harder on Comrade Slater, wouldn't we be saying he could have read, he, I'm sure he did read the annual reports and whatever, uh, he's got a bit soft in his old age with uh, his wife and, uh, and, and being a sort of family man, not total geek like he used to be. But uh, he's still enough of a geek that he will have read all the annual reports in detail. And when he was buying the shares, he would have seen, uh, as we highlighted on Share Profits last Wednesday, uh, the fact that they kept on moving the goalposts for awarding themselves ever more obscene uh, option schemes. <laughs> so he bought after that. And when you've bought, having that, with that already in the public domain, it's a bit hard to go back to the company and say, well, you've been terribly naughty. Can you, can you be good going forward? Because they'd say you knew what you were buying. Yes, I, mean, <laughs> I was quite funny in that they literally do change the goalposts year in, year out. I mean, I think one year it was kind of EBITDA driven, another year it was net cash driven, then it was EPS driven. Um, all the while they kept deciding, actually, um, you know, 200% of our basic salary isn't enough. We need to make it 400% uh, as, as an exceptional circumstance. And then 400% isn't enough. We need unexceptional uh, performance to be 200 percent um yeah i mean this was all in black and white and has been there for uh well certainly the last three or four years so certainly since they started embarking on this spending spree where they were buying up a load of assets and um managing to uh you know, have uh, a growing difference between the adjusted numbers that were coming out which oh funny enough all the performance share plans run off of adjusted numbers versus what the actual reporting underlying numbers were. Um, 
uh, from the performance of the business. So, yeah, it's a fair point. Is um, one, I says one point, further point in Slater's defence. If one is faced with a situation where you perceive a company is a good investment, even though its management are greedy bastards and the unacceptable face of capitalism, as a fund manager, isn't it your duty to buy their shares anyway? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, yeah. I, I suppose so. I mean, ESG goes out the window. I guess you know, ESG counts when it counts, and when it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, you have to be fairly ruthless in this game, and yeah, yeah. Crude, yeah as long as they can keep ramping, pumping the share price, and persuading everybody that organic growth is eleven percent, does it really matter how greedy they are? <laughs> it will only matter when they have a profit warning. Yeah, it, well, it matters with their profit warning. And also, I think that it becomes, it is a bit of a slap in the face when it is such an acquisitive company and literally less than a month after they raised the most money they've ever raised to buy the biggest, uh, they spend the most money they've ever spent, they sell down stock um, to any such a, a high value of stock, um, such a quantum. I think that's a bit of a slap in the face. And the problem is, I think it just makes it much more difficult next time around if, for example, they want to come back to market to, to raise capital to make another large acquisition. Um, I think that at that point in time, shareholders would be quite within their rights to say, well, hold on a minute. Last time we, we, we handed over a lot of cash to you and you, you came around with the collection plate. Um, Literally a month later, you went and flogged a load of stock. Um, mm. So where is where are where do your interests lie? I think it makes that much more difficult. And the problem for the company now is that you know, this is a roll up. Um, they have been making bigger and bigger acquisitions. They don't. If they want to to move the dial um, on the earnings outlook going forward. Uh, one would imagine that they have to make more acquisitions. There will have to be big acquisitions if they're going to turn the dial, given how much the business has grown through acquisition in the last three years. Um, and they're going to either have to issue more paper or issue paper for that. I don't think they can necessarily raise a huge amount of debt to fund this, um, because fundamentally it's a, it's a pretty cyclical business. And... Um, uh, so it's either issuing paper or coming to the market to raise uh, raise uh, cash through equity issuance. And as I said, I think in that respect, it's probably more difficult for them to do that, given um, kind of almost the two fingers they stuck up to investors last time they did that. OK, one, one final question uh, on this before we move on. Uh, is there a sort of uh, going to be a key event, a key catalyst, which will see the shares falling from here or do you think it'll just be that they have their AGM Slater will kick up a bit of a fuss and we'll move on uh, they'll have the capital markets day with all the sell side analysts blowing them off um, and then it'll just on we will set in yeah I, I think that there'll just be um, a, I mean probably just a general slow erosion I think that now people have become more circumspect of um, how well the company is doing, how much actually is true organic growth, how much benefits they are getting from synergies from these acquisitions. 
versus how much it has originated just simply from buying stuff. Um, and I think that given the valuation as it stands today, it's difficult to see it going much higher. And so amongst the longs, they may decide, well, actually, um, you know, it's had a pretty good run. Uh, you know, either let's look to, to trim it a bit or let's just look to crystallize that. Um, on the flip side, the the short interest in it is actually very low. Um, I'm, I was surprised at how low it was. I mean, it, it, you know, when, when it's only around 2%. Um, so maybe you might get a few uh, people coming into the market on the short side, which might put a bit of pressure on the price. Do you think the capital markets day will see any hostile questioning at all? Will you be there? Uh, no, I won't be there. I doubt that I'd get in, so I won't make the effort. I mean, um, I'm always... You got into Quindell when I got thrown I, out. Well, I did, yes, but that's what kind of reminds me that... Um, the, <laughs> I think it's very unlikely that I would get in because, um, yeah, you, 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 you had no chance getting in. They, they basically had the heavies um, to stop, stop you getting in. I only got in by the grace of um, Charles Stanley, um, the Quindell... Um, uh, uh, AGM um, because I was there as a, essentially as an investor um, I think that my card would probably have been marked as much as yours was uh, at Quindell so there's very little prospect of me getting in so no I won't be there I don't think that there'll be particularly any heavy hitting questions that are lobbed at management I don't know whether they're going to try to untangle this organic growth business and and and, and try to um, articulate how uh, they arrive at this 11% figure. I suspect probably more of the hard-hitting questions will come if they go around the, the houses seeing a few of the institutions um, and that they may face them there rather than in an open forum. Right. Let's move on from future. Um, have you uh, looked at the uh, Finabler NMC health um, situation? N not massively, no. I mean, it was one that we we always got asked. You know, this is kind of six months ago. Have you ever looked at NMC? There's something that doesn't add up quite quite right with that. Um, but it generally dissuades us as uh, to looking at things if kind of you get a sense that the issues are already quite widely known. Um, but more for us, because we should have done, because obviously uh, Muddy Waters highlighted it in quite spectacular fashion. It's unravelling um, it, unraveling quite a bit today. Uh, it yeah, I, still. That's why I raised it. I see NMC and Fenebra both falling sharply. Uh, is it potentially a, a vicious circle? Because it does mean that a vast amount of the equity of both companies is... Um, pledged a security on loans and one wonders whether they're loans against the value of their equity in other companies and it could become a vicious spiral of sort of margin calls and effectively forced sellers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, <coughs> that is a significant risk and it does get, it does feel like that's happening. Um, I don't know whether it is, but it certainly does, that's the impression that you get that that is, that is underway. Um, let's not forget that I think that the is it the main or the, the two main shareholders actually sold a fair amount of stock. What about a month or so ago? Mm -hmm. um, about four hundred. Was it about four? Just under five hundred million dollars worth. Five hundred. Yeah, that was it. And um, I mean that was a huge amount of stock at a significant discount. 
And that's got to be, one would think, because they were facing significant margin calls. And Mm -hmm. the question is, have they margined the remainder of it? And are they getting called upon that? So, yeah, it it, it has the potential to be quite a nasty death spiral. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's move on uh, to uh, another um, uh, uh, Carson Block Muddy Waters triumph. Uh, I don't know if we call it a triumph yet, Burford. Because mm. you, yeah, I think, I mean, uh, you were short, weren't you? Yes, we were. We don't have a short in at the moment. Um, we shorted it, uh, when was it? I think July last year, uh, two or three weeks before Muddy came out with a, with a spectacular dossier on it. Um, I, admittedly, I hadn't had a chance to go through the full statement uh, with a fine tooth comb this morning. But um, again, it, it, it kind of has the feeling of a busted flush, this one. Um, I mean, the, the profits the warning for last year, but saying yeah. everything's going to be better this year. Yeah, I mean, just looking at the share price, the I mean, what was noticeable was that I, I think it may have bounced a bit the, earlier, but the it touched the lows of where it closed uh, in the aftermath of the muddy waters report. Um, so it kind of got all the way, it marched all the way back up to about ten pounds a share, and it's come back to the lows, which is not a particularly encouraging sign. Um, it, the short interest in it is also almost back to the pre-muddy waters level. So it's actually pretty low. Um, so it, you do get the sense that it is a busted flush because the, the longs are now properly throwing in the towel and thinking this isn't the great um, investment that we once thought it was. Uh, the other thing is, of course, that management don't look particularly clever these days because... If you recall, um, in the, the day or a few days after the Muddy Waters report, they got out their checkbooks and they, they waded into the market with um, their bravado buys. Uh, and you know, all the longs, they got pumped up massively. It was like you know, the, the, the Queen on Derby Day. And they got really encouraged by this. And then um, they forgot that in the year or so before, management have sold a... a gargantuan amount of stuff, stock, um, which put those buys in, they paled into insignificance. Um, they don't look particularly clever with their purchases now. Um, mm, look rather cleverer with their sales. Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, is that the, I think the main thrust of what I could glean from this morning's update was that um, the announcement very much supported the thesis that we had, and certainly that of Muddy Waters, which is that this is a business where the profit and the cash generation is incredibly lumpy. And at the time that it was trading on three to four times book value, that was a crazy valuation for what is probably the true underlying profit recognition profile of the business. Um, And the irony is, is that they seem to be admitting to that now, um, in that I think they put a final line of this morning's statement was suggesting that, um, I wrote it down. They, they put, uh, we can't control when courts rule or matters resolve. 
And in many instances, we make more money from delay because of the pricing of structure of our legal finance assets. So they're saying, basically, you know, we have no idea when these things are going to come to fruition, which is Except, a great of course, when they, uh, when they book a, a result as being a, a win before the court rules, <laughs> or even being after it's ruled as a defeat. Exactly. I think this is the, the great irony is that this is, goes against the grain to when they sit down historically at the end of their reporting periods, put their finger up in the air and think, hmm, what shall we value with this today? Yeah, we lost this case, so let's book it as a big profit. Yeah, um, I mean, it's nuts. Anyway. Is, the, the one thing about Burford is com, com, comparing future, which uh, played classic Sam Antar playbook, Burford went the other way. Not only are they having an independent <laughs> inquiry, which is going to uh, be no doubt as, as, as rigorous as an impartial as uh, the uh, inquiry into Cupid by KPMG or Shami Chakrabarti's inquiry into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, but uh, they're, um, they, they're also uh, hired in lawyers who've decided that uh, Carson Block's guilty of uh, uh, crimes against humanity already, ahead of the independent yeah, I mean inquiry, which you'll find... Uh, that Carson Block's guilty of crimes against humanity. I mean, I, I have to say... Sam wouldn't no be proud of Burford, would he? No, no. I mean, this is this is not textbook Antar. This is kind of anti-Antar. This is the... Um, the uh, I mean, I'd say they have made themselves look pretty stupid. I mean, certainly all that guff and crap they came out in the days after where they had that guy over... I can't remember whether he's Canadian or American, um, saying that there was market manipulation because of spoofing and layering in the market. Well, one, that's got nothing to do with muddy waters, um, because I very much doubt for any any moment that they are have been guilty of, of spoofing or layering markets. They probably implement their trading much as we do, which is what we use um, uh, regulated counterparties, provide our, our instructions uh, to trade to those counterparties, our prime broker, and they implement the trades. And if they were to ever become involved in spoofing or layering, you can bet you anything that the FCA would be on them like a ton of bricks. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I think that they've just made themselves look pretty stupid. I mean, even to the degree where they did the whole kind of perfunctory, matter-of-fact type responses as you, as you come to expect, which is probably the worst thing to do, um, as I said, whereby they say, firstly, it's all false, misleading. Then they try to attack the player, um, not, not play the ball. Um, and then they come out with their bravado buyers. And then they, I mean, this is the other thing. They, they, at the time, I think they were, again, trying to get their, uh, hop their investors into getting out their checkbooks to buy more stock by suggesting that they'd do a share buyback. Um, and this morning, one of the headlines popped up saying that they now no longer think that it's it's uh, the best thing to do to implement a share buyback. Um, I mean, they're just... Well, they were thinking about it at a much higher price, but now at a much lower price, they're not thinking yeah, about exactly. it. <laughs> exactly. I know. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And that uh, actually, they might be raising debt. Um, they don't want to tap the market for capital, for equity. They might raise some debt. Well, I mean, if, if, if I was an investor in this business, given that they've just essentially come clean on the lumpiness of the nature of the profit recognition and the cash generation, generation I'd be very... Be very concerned about the prospect of this company becoming more indebted. 
Um, so it, it seems as though there are you know, odds and ends, basically, in terms of what's coming out from the company. It's not game, set and match to Carson, but you'd have to say he's two sets to love up and 4-1 up in the third, isn't he? Yeah. Is um just on, on well, that issue of management he's done pretty well. <laughs> <coughs> okay, uh, one all in the third. Um, in in terms of the management buying <laughs> stock, I was just thinking back to an old friend of ours. You remember David Williams of Avanti Communications? Yes. <laughs> he sold vast amounts, eight or nine million quid's worth of shares, at something like eight quid a pop after they launched their first crap satellite into space. And uh, not, not content with being paid a million dollars a year as a basic salary over a decade. Um, and then he used to make great, great play about how he was buying, uh, you know, 50,000 quids worth of shares at five quid, four quid, three quid, 20p, 5p. And, and, and thought people would be impressed by it. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, he, he did very well. I mean, the... Um I, I guess, but the you know, Venti, is, is Venti actually delisted now, hasn't it? Delisted, yes, absolutely. Investors have lost a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yet again, management wins. Um, <laughs> to, the investors kind of are left in a bewildering daze, I guess, as to what the hell happened. <laughs> is in these in these troubled times, is there any other UK stock you're short of of note? Sorry, Tom, I didn't catch that. Is there in these UK troubled stock? times for the bear community, is there any other UK stock where you have a meaningful short position? Uh, there's one we're doing a lot of work on at the moment, and we think it's very interesting. It is, it is a UK company. Um, it's it's uh, over two billion market cap, and we've we've found something that's that's very compelling. Um, we don't have a short on it at the moment because we're still doing our work. Um, but thus far, it, it looks as though it, it could be a bit of a home run. But okay. I expect that's probably going to be a month, a month or two months away. Okay. On that note, I can't wait for that. Uh, we'll speak again soon, Matt. Thank you for your time. Cheers, Tom. Thanks, Mike. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Matt Earl. If you heard a funny sound at the beginning of the interview, uh, that was one of my cats being sick behind me. But nonetheless, the show must go on. Uh, the cat has now been dealt with. One of the interesting points Matt raised there was this issue of sell-side analysts, people who write research reports for broking houses, uh, and their bias uh, towards stocks which have to issue a lot of equity or raise a lot of debt or engage in desperate M&A activity. It is an inherent corruption within the system. The amounts that broking houses earn from secondary trading in shares is pitiful. It's trivial. The margins are so thin, they make no money from it at all. In order to cover the bloated salaries of equity analysts in the City of London, uh, uh, broking houses must bring in corporate work. They must raise money for companies, typically an activity which sees them earn commission of 5%. 
raised 10 million quid and you've earned 500,000 quid for the firm, uh, which pays for three equity analysts for a whole year. Or they must do M&A transactions where the fees are astronomical or help companies raise debt. And in order to win those mandates, equity houses have to be supportive. If you go around putting out a sell note on a company, you're never going to win a mandate. And therefore, whatever equity analysts want to write, uh, they know which side their bread is buttered on. Uh, the most extreme example of that uh, in recent years is, of course, with the mega fraud Quindell, uh, a company which I did so much to expose, indeed was commended by the FRC for my work on exposing. Uh, its uh, joint brokers were uh, Sencos and Canaccord, and a Canaccord analyst, Kevin Ashton, was ordered to write a buy note on Quindell, which clearly uh, was going to be needing to raise vast amounts of money, since being a fraud, it never generated any of its own. Uh, Ashton produced the note, uh, but it didn't say buy. Uh, it's pretty much laid out that the company was a fraud. It was an honest piece of work. Uh, the note was shown to the client, uh, and the client made it clear that uh, Canaccord would lose the mandate, it would lose its brokership, unless uh, a new report was commissioned uh, and Mr. Ashton's services were dispensed with, as indeed they were. Mr. Ashton was a let go by Canaccord. That's an extreme example. Uh, it's very rare that an analyst is so gutsy and brave that they're prepared to make a call of that nature. Uh, but it shows the relationship between the two. I seem to remember Mark Slater, uh, the great fund manager, who also featured in that interview with Matt, uh, uh, mentioned, was it Mark Slater or was it Luke Johnson? I think it was Mark, mentioned at UK Investor Show a few years ago that there was a correlation between the number of buy notes from equity houses uh, uh, and uh, on a particular company and its share price performance. That is to say, the correlation was negative. The more buy notes that came out on a given company, the worse the share price performance of that company. And you can understand the reason. Uh, if there are a plethora of buy notes on a company, uh, that means that there's a lot of analysts out there touting for work. They can see that it's going to have to raise money. And of course, most equity fundraisers are dilutive. Uh, equity fundraisers are either to fund acquisitions, and we know from history that most acquisitions destroy shareholder value, or simply to keep the lights on in cash-guzzling, uh, worthless pieces of shit. There is a negative correlation between buy notes and share price performance, which always amazes me uh, that so many people <coughs> in their analysis of stocks like to quote Broker X as saying their price target is, uh, is Y or Broker Y, their price target is Z, which is a big premium to the current share price, and think that this actually means anything. It means nothing at all. The fact that a whole load of brokers are publishing buy notes is, to me, uh, almost as good a signal, uh, a sell signal, uh, as seeing that a stock is the most beloved stock on the bulletin boards. At least uh, most of the people commenting on bulletin boards open in their intent. They're trying to promote the worthless pieces of crap they're invest invested in. They don't pretend that they are offering up objective, high-quality analysis. That pretense is left to the City of London professionals.
On next week's show, I'll try and have a CEO on, but you never know. You never know what's going to pop up over the next week. Thanks uh, again to Open Orphan for following uh, this, uh, for sponsoring this podcast. So it's available to you for free. Uh, you can, of course, find out more about it, Open Orphan, which is a stock, uh, I should declare again, that I own uh, uh, over uh, on Share Profits, uh, where there have been a number of articles in the past couple of weeks. Uh, and of course, you can follow us at Twitter at Open Orphan. I'm happy to take sponsorship from this company because it is one that will this year be cash generative and profitable and is, I believe, a fine undervalued enterprise. I'll be back in another week's time or so with another edition of Share Profits Radio. Uh, if you've enjoyed this show, maybe you don't want to wait a week for uh, more uh, 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 wit, humor and insight. Uh, you you could, don't have to wait a week. I produce a podcast every day on Share Profits. It's called Bearcast, uh, and it covers a range of issues and is white-raging, and I don't hold back in my views or my language. Uh, You can sign up to Share Profits for our breaking stories. Uh, We were uh, well ahead of the game on future, uh, 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 some six days ahead of the Deadwood Press, and even ahead of Matthew Earle in our uh, coverage of that company. Um, uh, You can sign up for our articles, uh, uh, which there are about nine every day, uh, plus my uh, daily bearcasts, and it costs you just $5.99 a month. A fantastic investment. So sign up for Share Profits today, um, and I will be speaking to you tomorrow in Bearcast. If you're a cheapskate, I'll speak to you in a week's time. Thank you once again for listening.